Well, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to another Hi. wonderful Radical Feminist Perspectives with me, Lear Keith, and Marion Rutigliano. And we're going to be talking about the book, The Creation of Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner. So over to you, Marion. Yeah, this book was published in 1986. Um, and she, um, she she notes at the beginning, she she notes at the beginning that the conceptual framework of how you look at things historically, um, you know, determines the interpretation and is never value free. Having said that, um, she wants to know how did we I mean, you can the last chapter in the book is the creation of patriarchy, which sums things up. Um, but she, she wants to know how we got there, how we got to this. Um, a significant proportion of the book is references. Um, we are this is not going to be a history class. We're not going to go into every references every reference there's just tons and tons of them um and you can you could spend months um going through them when you read the book but we're going to tell you um what are the basic points um she notes that first religion all religions and then science you know darwin freud you know uh, natural science and um social science assumed that women's subordination was universal god-given natural and immutable because it has always been that way um, but it isn't. And that's what this book does is to is to try and explain where it came from um, it and, and how it is certainly not natural. Um, traditionalists say that male dominance is universal and natural, that women are subordinate to men because that's how God created things. <clears throat> and that um, uh, we need to look at different differences in physical size and strength and reproductive capacity because that pretty much creates everything. And while those are um, uh, relevant um, th that's not the whole story. Lier? Yeah, so this is the first quote I pulled out. The process we are now discussing occurs at different times in different parts of the world, yet it shows regularity of causes and outcome. Approximately at the time when hunting, gathering, or horticulture gives way to agriculture, kinship <laughs> arrangements tend to shift from matrilineal to patriliny and private property develops. So, you know, for our first two million years on this planet, we did hunting, hunting, gathering, and that is just universal. That's what humans did. And agriculture is actually a very, very recent invention. Um, the longest anybody's been doing that is maybe 10,000 years. So a lot happens to human culture with this really kind of seismic shift in the way that we are living. And one of the main points of the book is that it's when agriculture begins that you can really say that for sure, these these cultures end up being patriarchal. So the first thing that happens is it shifts from being, um, you know, descent is marked mostly through your your mother's line to your father being the one that's important. And with this comes the concept of private property, which kind of ends up being, you know, the the main the main problem for for women and the the development of male power. So she she quotes a lot of people. Marion's already said there's a lot of footnotes in this book. So um, this is a quote where she's talking about, you know, another reference. But uh, McAd this McAdams, whoever that is, uh, while recognizing the importance of environmental and technological factors in the growth of civilizations, stressed that the core of the urban revolution lay in changes in social organization. Intensification of agricultural production due to specialization led to a stable food base which allowed the population to increase. Food redistribution was managed by the temple community, which gave this group the power to coerce farmers and herders to produce surplus. This could best be done by increasing irrigation, which in turn increased the power of the temple elite and led to sharper distinctions of wealth between those who owned land closer to a steady water supply and those who did not. This early class formation led to the next important shift in social structure, societal structure, that from kin-based to class-based society. And she's not the first person to notice this. This is um, noted throughout um, a lot of different um, sort of social commentary and historians who um, study this period, um, that the growth of cities is um, this sort of disaster for, for most humans. Um, so then she goes on, there are a few facts of which we can be certain on the basis of archaeological evidence. Sometime during the agricultural revolution, relatively egalitarian societies with a sexual division of labor based on biological necessity, and she means here the fact that women get pregnant, 
um, give way to more highly structured societies in which both private property and the exchange of women based on incest taboos and exogamy were common. And she goes into this a lot um, in, in this chapter, but what she means by incest taboos is that somebody has to leave and get married somewhere. You have to leave one, either the men or the women have to leave. You, you can't have everybody just staying in the tribe because you're going to be marrying your cousins before you know it. So you have to have either in endogamy or exogamy. Either the men or the women have to go and have their sexual partners be somewhere else. Um, and so that's based on incest taboos for a good reason, because people aren't stupid. And they notice that if you marry too closely, you end up with people getting sick, um, that, you know, you're just going to have too much um, strange genetic damage turning up. So you, you have to have, you know, a larger population to kind of mix up your genes sometimes. Um, the earlier societies were often matrilineal and matrilocal, while the, la the latter surviving societies were predominantly patrilineal and patrilocal. Nowhere is there any evidence of reverse process going from patriliney to matriliney. So once patriarchy starts, we've never seen an example of it going back. The more complex societies featured a division of labor no longer based only on biological distinction, but also on hierarchy and the power of some men over other men and all women. A number of scholars have concluded that the shift here described coincides with the formation of archaic states. So this is the beginning of the government. It's the, you know, the beginning of the city-state. So you're, you're going to have a class of people whose job is to rule. That has never happened before. It is with this period then that the theoretical speculation must end and historical inquiry begin. So Marion, do you want to jump in here at all or should I keep going? Um, yeah, I mean, the the I think there's a slide on this later. Um, uh, uh, Engels, um, he, he wrote a book called Origin of the Family, Private Property in the State, and he was the only one who really tried to do a historical analysis that addressed um, that addressed this issue with, um, you know, with uh, formation of states and emergence of classes. But he thought that class relations were more important than relations between the sexes um, and never did the class analysis that is radical feminism, though he did recognize the, you know, commodification of women's labor um, in patriarchy and of women's bodies. Um, all the theories about, um, you know, women's role in the past, though, were not really not buttressed by historical proof that he could find. So, um, you know, early in the 19th century, feminists theorized about society based on what they called maternalism in the past and a separate sphere belonging to women. And later we saw that, for example, in Mary Daly talking about men and women's cultures. Next slide. So, I mean, I, she is not making this up out of nowhere. There are any number of um, historians and social theorists who have observed the exact same thing, that something very severe happens to humans when we start doing agriculture. So this is a famous article by Jared Diamond, who won a Pulitzer Prize, and they don't just give those out to anybody. Um, but he has this famous article from Discover Magazine, The Worst Mistake in the History of the Human Race. And it's all about um, what agriculture did to us and did to the planet. And I, I've got a quote from him in here. The adoption of agriculture, supposedly our most decisive step toward a better life, was in many ways a catastrophe from which we have never recovered. With agriculture came the gross social and sexual inequality, the disease and despotism that curse our existence. And one thing I do like about Jared Diamond is, I mean, I think he's right about all of this, but also he does not shy away from the fact that this is the beginning of patriarchy. He absolutely names that women have been subordinated ever since and that, and that this is kind of where, where the horror begins. And then a few more quotes from, from this article, which I highly recommend. Like I have to say, it took me 20 years to wrap my mind around all of this in my sort of you know wanderings through feminist theory and trying to figure out what is the origin of patriarchy? And I read Gerda Lerner when it, you know, back in the 80s. And it still took me a long time to try to just come to terms with this, not because it's difficult intellectually, but honestly, because it was difficult emotionally. So um, if you need kind of a primer on this, I would go to Jared Diamond because this article is really short and he will walk you through step by step what her book is about on a, on a much, much bigger scale. So he talks about the skeletons that show what happened. The average height of hunter-gatherers um, was 5'9 for men and 5'5 five five for women. But the moment people start doing agriculture, people shrink. Um, so it reached a low of 5'3 for men and, and 5 feet for women. By classical times, heights were very slowly on the rise again. But modern Greeks and Tur Turks have still not regained the average height of their distant ancestors. So 
we're still doing the damage. Um, and then there's a site in um, the Americas uh, near the Illinois River where they excavated 800 skeletons and that paint a picture of the health changes that occurred when the hunter-gatherer culture gives way to intensive maize farming around AD 1150. Compared to the hunter-gatherers who preceded them, the farmers had a nearly 50% increase in enamel defects indicative of malnutrition, a fourfold increase in iron deficiency anemia evidenced by a bone condition called parotic hyperostosis. And that's supposed to be incredibly painful. I've seen pictures of the skulls. They just have like holes all over the bone in their skulls. And it's supposed to be really, really a painful condition. A threefold rise in bone lesions reflecting infectious diseases in general, and an increase in degenerative conditions of the spine, probably reflecting a lot of hard physical labor. Life expectancy at birth in pre-agricultural community was about 26 years, but in the post-agricultural community, it was 19 years. So these episodes of nutritional stress and infectious disease were seriously affecting their ability to survive. Um, the only modern, finally, um, the only, the only modern um, uh, illustration that I can think of this um, is in North Korea, um, where mm -hmm. almost the entire diet is exclusively, um, you know, plant-based, and for for the poorest of the poor, that only plant is grass, but um, but that's that's what their entire diet consists of. And, and if you look at them compared to the South Koreans, you see everything that was, was just mentioned there, the bone lesions, the height, everything. And then he also, you know, then he talks about what it did to human health, but then what it does to, to society at large, to human culture, to humans' capacity to be human. Uh, besides malnutrition, starvation, and epidemic diseases, farming helped bring another curse upon humanity, deep class divisions. Hunter-gatherers have little or no stored food, and no concentrated food sources, like an orchard or a herd of cows. They live off the wild plants and animals they obtain each day. Therefore, they can there can be no kings, no class of social parasites who grow fat on food seized from others. Only in farming populations could a healthy, non-producing elite set itself above the disease-ridden masses. Skeletons from Greek tombs in 1500 BC suggest that royals enjoyed a better diet than commoners, since the royal skeletons were two or three inches taller and had better teeth, uh, among the Chilean mummies from AD 1000, the elite were distinguished not only by ornaments and gold hair clips, but also by fourfold lower rate of bone lesions caused by disease. And this is universal. Everywhere you start to see the beginning of agriculture, you see the class divisions begin, and then the archaeological evidence will show you this. It was true in the Aztec. It's true across China. Um, the people in the royal class, the, in the ruling class positions are anywhere from three to six inches taller than the commoners and absolutely definitely the slaves. So that's what Jared Diamond has to say about it. And I, I do recommend reading as a sort of a supplement or a beginning to this. If this is your first kind of your first rodeo with this material, it's a great article because it's short and it really gets to the point. Um, OK, so back to our book. In an ecologically constricted space. Growing populations can be supplied only by increasing agricultural production or by expansion. The former leads to the development of elites, the latter to the development of militarism, first on a voluntary, then on a professional basis. So the thing about agriculture is that this is inevitable because you're using up your soil. Um, you have to go out and conquer the people near you and take their stuff. So you've used up everything that you've got, your trees, your water, your fish, your land, and then you have to go and get that from somewhere else because you've used up your own. So that's why it's inevitable that you're gonna end up in a militaristic world. Um, and of course, once you have this surplus and you've got this stratified society, there's an entire class of people whose job is war. So agriculture makes that possible, but it also makes it inevitable. So you've got this permanent class of soldiers and their job is just to conquer and to take slaves and to take uh, material resources and bring them back to the power source, you know, the power center of the city. Um, and the the other thing about the military being a permanent class is that, first of all, they can do it full time. Hunter-gatherers can't. They can't. I mean, they just they don't have a surplus that can then provide for a class of people to be warriors. You can be part time. You know, that might be something that you do to protect your boundaries or whatever. But they don't have a permanent class of people whose job is simply war. So the warrior class gets better and better at what they're doing. And they develop the human technology and also the um, just the actual gear that makes it more possible. For instance, the stirrup, for instance, 
um, you know, quote, better weapons. So you're going to have metallurgy and you're going to have iron and you're then eventually you're going to have steel and then you're going to have guns. And eventually, you know, your technology so outstrips your neighbors that it's it's a no contest uh, when it comes time to conquer them. So all of this unrolls around the world in every place that agriculture started. You see the exact same pattern over and over again. So this is what she's talking about here. Um, in Mesopotamia, these social formations took the form of temple towns, which developed in the fourth and third millennia BC. Under conditions of intertribal warfare, the existence of towns act as a magnet for the populations of surrounding villages who migrate to the city to find work or to seek protection in times of war or famine. Such populations then become the laborers in the large enterprises, which made possible the construction of large temple complexes and of centralized irrigation projects. The temple engaged in complex religious, political, and economic activities. Archaeological evidence shows that from 3000 BC on, temple hierarchies coordinated the construction and maintenance of a system of canals that were many miles long and demanded the cooperation of a number of communities. The financing of such vast enterprises, the maintenance of labor squads paid in rations, and the investment of surpluses in the mass production of certain craft products for export all led to the consolidation of power and the specialization of function in the hands of a temple bureaucracy. So this is what you've got now is this hierarchical stratified society where they've got labors, mostly slaves on the bottom. You've got then some skilled craftspeople on the next level. Then you've got the soldier class above that. And then you have the religious elites. And then ultimately like the king, the king kind of person, or maybe you know a little bit of an oligarchy up top, but it's absolutely a pyramid. And this is brand new in, in human life. We, we did not live this way as hunter-gatherers. None of this was possible before agriculture and cities developed. So, Marion, do you want to jump in here at all, or should I keep going? Yeah, somebody somebody um, in the comments says women were also hunters. Hunters, hun you know. Yes, and, absolutely, and, yeah. And um, there's plenty and of evidence people, about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and someone else noted that um, the people who care most about the land really are the nomadic and foraging people, not the agricultural people, because, you know, you use up your land and you move on. Um, people who, um, you know, hunt and gathered or, or foraged, um, come to understand very quickly that you just, you, you can't take everything. You have to take only what you need. Um, and that's why, you know, there is no, as you said, repository of, of like something that you're going to keep for next year or for the next two years. Um, so it's very, very different. Um, uh, of all people, Daniel Boone, remember Daniel Boone? used to go off hunting in Kentucky, which was which was actually a hunting ground. I mean, nobody, you know, none of the surrounding tribes lived there. They used it as a hunting ground. They yeah. each had to be in their own in their own separate area. And he he saw after after just like taking as many fox fur pelts as he could, you know, or or deer or whatever, um, that no one could do this. And he was one of the first people who um who came up with the concept of of limits, hunting limits, that you could only take so much. And it could only be um, for what you actually needed. Um, so that, I mean, how long did it take from, you know, <laughs> from uh, um, millennia ago till, you know, just a few hundred years ago for us to figure that out? Um, and in the meantime, with all this, I mean, yes, women hunted as well. Um, but but because of our reproductive capacity, women um, had to care for, for for children, for infants with a very prolonged needy infancy. Um, so when they when they went someplace, they had, a, you know, and they would nurse for two to three years. So when they would go someplace, when they would forage, um, hunt small game um, or even, you know, support the hunting of large game, they had to take their kids with them. And that really that kind of changed or, or inevitably changed how they could participate and how they were seen um, in the in these societies. Next slide, Lear. Well, the I just want to add one more point that, you know, you talk about. Uh, people, uh, you know, being able to observe and then have limits on their behavior in order to live in a sustainable way in place. And just to emphasize, we did that for a million and a half years. Like the disaster does not begin until this, till 10,000 years ago, when all of a sudden people start for whatever reason, and we don't actually know why, but for whatever reason, in some river valleys around the world, they decide, oh, actually, it's a better idea to just clear the land of all life and just support humans on it which of course can't be sustained because that's not nature's pattern. Um, and so this is that's where the disaster begins. But I'm reminded of this anecdote that I heard years ago, I read this in a book that the 
there was a group of um, the indigenous people, I think it was the Blackfeet Indians, I can't remember what tribe it was, but somebody in the way upper Midwest, and they wanted to have a buffalo hunt. And the buffalo, there's all this stuff about the bison here about who gets to hunt them and why, and they're, you know, they're considered federal property and blah, blah. Anyway, they had to apply for a permit to have um, a traditional buffalo hunt. And the the Department of, Ga of um, the Game, whatever, the wildlife people came back and said, all right, you can do this, but we're going to tell you what, you know, what the, the size and the age and the sex of the animals that you're allowed to hunt. And you have to do what we say. And the Indians came back and said, that's not the ratio that we have traditionally done this. And we don't want to do what you're telling us. And the scientists people came back and said, no, you have to do this or we won't give you the permits. So they said, all right, but we think it's going to be a disaster. Well, it was because what the scientists wanted them to do was hunt mostly the old bulls. And they figured, well, the old bulls are kind of, you know, reproductively, um, you know, we don't, we only need one. You don't need more than one male. So you should just take all the the, the bulls that are in the herd and, and it, everything will be fine. And that was not the traditional ratio for the hunt. And so they did what they were told and they did take a bunch of the old bulls. And then you know what happened? The entire herd starved because in the deep winter, when the snow was like 10 feet deep and all the brittle grasses underneath, and that's what you need to eat if you're a bison, um, the only animals that are big enough to get through that snow are the bulls. And there weren't enough bulls now to break through that ice pack and get to the grasses below. So the indigenous people were exactly right about their ratios. And they were right because they had observed it for hundreds or thousands of years. And, you know, relying on the scientists to just tell them that it didn't work. Um, so that's what happens when you're able to observe and you live with, you know, the animals and the grasses and the snow and the whole environment that you're part of. You observe this like the, the, the bulls did have a role. Um, they were the only ones that were massive enough to actually make food available for the rest, for the rest of the herd. So they were right. So anyway, a sad story, but illustrative of all of this. Anyway, next slide is okay. So now I want to bump to, to just Lewis a quick response a to a comment. Um, yeah, talking about children being needy um, in comparison to animals. Um, an animal gives birth, and within you know a day or so, um, the little animal is is walking. Um, and 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 has seen the um, you know the beginnings of, of finding food. Um, you know, I mean, the, the there may be um, nursing, but um, but the the uh, from from birth to you know age age seven or eight take uh, takes a lot less time in animals than it does in humans, and that's what I mean by by needy. Um, that it, that it's it's just not so rapid. Well, and this is because humans decided to walk upright. And so yep. the female pelvis had to narrow for us to do that. And what yeah. it means is that human infants are really born premature. And a lot of people call the first three months of infant life the fourth trimester because they just need to eat and sleep an awful lot for their... If our brains were big enough to be more mature on, on entry into the world, we'd never get out. So we have to be born like really, really helpless for that to happen because we have such enormous brains. So all of that has to happen, you know, ex utero, not in utero, but it means that we're born really, really helpless and we're that way for a long time. And this, you know, has had an impact on human social development because like Marion says, it's, we're very dependent. And this is why that matrifocal model makes way more sense because the primary human bond really is mother, infant, mother, child for that reason. And in this sort of very more, you know, the more ancient kind of gynocentric cultures that's understood and that's respected and protected that that unit is what everything else is built around. Um, and patriarchy, of course, just takes it completely off the rails. So, so Lewis Mumford, I would say, is probably the best criti critic of civilization and what it meant, um, what happened, how, how we got strat stratified this way. So he's just backing up what she said here. Um, and and this, so this is talking about how the hierarchies developed um, a new configuration of technical in in invention, scientific observation, and centralized political control gave rise to the peculiar mode of life we may now identify without eulogy as civilization. Its Herculean feats of mechanical organization rested on ruthless physical coercion, forced labor slavery, which brought into existence machines that were capable of exerting thousands of horsepower centuries before horses were harnessed or wheels invented. It created complex human machines composed of specialized, standardized, replaceable interdependent parts, the work army, the military army, the bureaucracy. These work armies and military armies raise the ceiling of human achievement 
the first in mass construction, the second in mass destruction, both on a scale hitherto inconceivable. And this little, it's is an article he wrote. He wrote entire books about this, but if, again, if you just wanna get your feet wet on this, um, authoritarian and democratic techniques is about 12 pages long. And it lays out the entire argument of how we got from here to there. And he calls the result of this, the mega machine. So it's a seamless suite of centralized political and economic power, science, technology, and the final goal is to displace life. And he's very clear that the planet will not survive this. Um, and he wrote this in 1964. So people have been on this for a long time. Um, the rest of humanity doesn't seem to be listening, but um, the analysis is there and it's quite sound. So that's that's Lewis Mumford, another another critique, a critic of this who would absolutely agree with um, Gerda Lerner. Um, and one more from, from Jared Diamond. So uh, besides malnutrition, starvation, epidemic disease, farming helped bring another curse upon humanity, deep class divisions. So the hunter gatherers, they don't have stored food, no concentrated food sources. Um, and then, you know, this thing about, I think I already did this slide, the um, how they're shorter and their teeth are falling out and all that. So, okay. Uh, Maring, why don't you take this one? Yeah, I mean, in terms of agriculture, um, you know, agriculture depends, you know, Agriculture depends on group cohesiveness, on continuity, um, which is, you know, which is enhanced um, with strong households. Um, women are, are essentially resources, um, you know, in terms of labor and having children. And this can only happen if women and their reproductive capacity are already controlled. I mean, this, you know, this patriarchal control came first and agriculture utilized it. Um, women as things essentially were traded and exchanged. Um, so that enforced marriage where a woman would be sent off to another, you know, another village or another tribe um, is really a, just a mutually satisfactory deal between, you know, groups of men, which was, again, going on long before agriculture. Um, tribes, you know, depended on uh, hunting, fishing and gathering for, um, for, for food supplies. Um, and it had to be um, carefully controlled when when. Uh, um, Little, you know, isolated tribes then became small villages, which then became, um, you know, unified with, say, another another group of small villages. So that there was a tribe, which then was a larger village. I mean, when all this happened, it required more and more and more control. Um, uh, and you talked about the, you know, the um, beginning of um, what were essentially armies um, to protect um, to protect those resources. Um, but the patriarchal control of women came first. Um, we call, you know, and, and we call this scattered villages becoming communities and then cities and states, we call this the rise of civilization. So um, we went from small villages, she, she notes, with kinship, essentially initially just determining the distribution of goods and power to large patriarchal families by the time cities arose. Women were excluded from more and more. Um, can you put the slide on? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, women were excluded from more and more. Female subordination within families was institutionalized and eventually codified. Women were excluded from many occupations and pro um, professions. Writing, formal education, women were denied. Religion made female deities subordinate to the chief male gods. Prostitution arose. And this all happened with the development of the state. The monogamous family changed into the patriarchal family in which the wife's household labor became a private service. The wife became the head servant, excluded from all participation in social production. Engels concluded the overthrow of the mother right was the world's historical defeat of, defeat of the female sex. The man took command in the home also. The woman was degraded and reduced to servitude. She became the slave of his lust and a mere instrument for the production of children. Engels used, used the term Mutterrecht hereafter referred to as mother right derived from Bachofen to describe matrilineal kinship relations in which the property of men did not pass to their children, but to their sister's children. Next slide. Won't move. I don't know why. Uh, Sorry, we're having, we're having those technical difficulties again. I think it takes a minute. Um, All right, we'll give it and, a second, see what happens. Yeah, that's okay. Um, the social structures became class-based with, with, women as a class, no longer part of a, a small kinship group, but women as a class across um, all, all efforts, um, beginning, beginning even with hunting and gathering societies and, and continuing into agriculture. The need, there was a need, needing to feed all these people 
um, in, you know, now these urban work settings um, needed meant, as you said, needing increased agricultural production, expansion to expand, to obtain others production. So a military was needed. Um, she, uh, somebody mentioned Mesopotamia and um, the military um, took control of the temple, took control of religion. And that ha happened in Meso both in Mesopotamia and in Mesoamerica. There was certainly, there's evidence certainly that upper-class women, um, you know, the evidence for them is actually easier to come by. Um, but there are graves of kings and queens revealing that servants were buried. And there were lots of them, so it's they were buried alive um, with dead royals um, along with them. Engels' basic assumptions about the nature of the sexes were based on an acceptance of evolutionary theories of biology. But his great merit was to point up the impact of societal and cultural forces in structuring and defining sexual relations. Parallel to his model of social relations, he developed an evolutionary theory of sex relations in which monogamous marriage among the working class in a socialist society stood at the apex of development. In thus linking sexual relations to changing social relations, he broke with the biological determinism of the traditionalists. In his calling attention to the sexual conflict built into the institution as it emerged within private property relations, he reinforced the linkage between economic social change and what we would today call gender relations. This was an extraordinary thing um, to, to recognize um, for any man, like ever. Um, but but for Engels to recognize that um, that there was like a, that there was a um, a class issue, and and he even you know he never really quite got there, but he 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 you know unwittingly um, made an argument for um, the sexes being classes. He talked about economic class, but across all economic classes, um, male female um, are classes with you know, females um, always um, getting the short end of the, the stick, as it were. Um, next next slide, please. Summarizing research findings concerning female dominance, um, and, and there was very little of that, except, you know, among some upper-class women historically who had um, some kind of um, dominance over their, you know, their servants or slaves. Most of the evidence for female equality in societies derived from matrilineal, matrilocal societies, which are historical, his, historically transitional and currently van, vanishing. While matrilineal and matrilocality confer certain rights and privileges on women, decision-making power within the kinship group nevertheless rests with elder males. Patrilineal descent does not imply subject, subjugation of women, nor does matrilineal descent in, indicate matriarchy. And that's a really important point. Um, matrilineal descent is not matriarchy. Seen yeah, over time, right. matrilineal societies have been unable to adapt to competitive, exploitative, techno-economic systems and have given way to patrilineal societies. Next slide, please. The case against the universality of prehistoric matriarchy seems quite clearly proven by the anthropologic, anthropological evidence. Pretty thin. Yet the debate over matriarchy rages on, largely because advocates of the matriarchy theory have been vague enough in their definition of the term to include it in various other categories. Those who define matriarchy as a society where women dominate over men, a sort of inversion of patriarchy, cannot cite anthropological, ethnological, or historic evidence. They rest their case on evidence from myth and religion. Um, next slide, please. She goes on um, to talk about um, to talk about slavery as well, and that you know. In order to enslave somebody, you have to see them as somehow other, other than human. And <clears throat> men knew that this conceptualization would work <clears throat> because the oppression of women came before slavery, sexual asymmetry, unequal division of labor, relationships of dominance and hierarchy. Men had certain rights in women, which women did not have in men. And so we ask, how did men and women in their society building and in the construction of what we call Western civilization arrive at, arrive at the present state? Once we abandon the concept of women as historical victims acted upon by violent men, inexplicable forces and societal institutions, we must explain the central puzzle, women's participation in the construction of the system that subordinates her. I suggest that abandoning the search for an empowering past, the search for matriarchy is the first step in the right direction. 
Next slide. This is, um, you know, a, a fertility idol. And um, there were, you know, in the past, um, uh, female goddesses. Um, you can see the, uh, um, somebody who's a, who knows art history may be better than me to explain um, why the, you know, the, the legs look so big. And I'm guessing that's the way they try to, um, they try to uh, initially maybe um, illustrate wide pelvises. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an art historian, but um, that would be my reading of it. Next slide, please. Um, there's a, uh, um, Nancy Chotero, um argued that the relationship, you know, in, in, in how this, how this really started, the relationship to the mother differs in systematic ways for boys and girls beginning in the earliest periods. Boys and girls learn to expect from women the infinite accepting love of a mother, but they also associate with women their fears of powerlessness. In order to find their identity, boys develop themselves as other than the mother. They identify with the father and turn away from emotional expression toward action in the world because it is women who do the mothering of children. Growing girls come to define and experience themselves as continuous with others. Their experience of self contains more flexible or permeable ego boundaries. Boys come to define themselves as more separate and distinct with a greater sense of rigid ego boundaries and differentiation. The basic feminine sense of self is connected to the world. The basic masculine sense of self is separate, which is which is why going back to what you know her her chapter about slavery is that when you see someone as other, you know when you are when you are separate, you see someone as other. That is when you can um, when you can enslave them. Um, there is a there's um there's even a um, she even quotes. Um, from the Iliad, Hector of Troy, um, speaking to his wife, Andromache, um, on the eve of battle, he, you know, he knows that the warriors will all be killed, but that it'll be much worse for the women as they will be enslaved, and and how horrible that was. Next slide, please. Very poignant. I actually found that chapter really hard to read. I know. One that's the, that first chapter on female slavery, because you just, oh, it really hits home. It's thousands of years. Like, how many women have been through this horrendous experience? of being a captive for life, raped over and over again, forced to bear his children, children that they probably love. Um, and then they're stuck because, I mean, they, this is one of the reasons she says that female slavery started first was because it was very obvious to, to the captors that women wouldn't leave their children. So once she was forcibly impregnated and had that baby, most women are gonna stick around and do everything they can to do the, their best for that child. Um, yeah, there's probably a few women who would try to do something like infanticide, but she talks about the, um, the I know it was Hammurabi's code or one of the Assyrian codes where if a woman tried to induce an abortion, the, the, the penalties for that were enormous, whereas men were allowed to commit infanticide at will. If they decided that the, you know, they didn't want this baby for whatever reason, they were allowed to just put it out to expose it. And women couldn't control their own fertility at all. It was completely under the control of of the men of the family, whether they were slaves or not. Um, only men could make the decision about you know the, the life and death of infants. So it was just it's very grim. That chapter is very very grim reading. Um, yeah. It just it really hits home, like just how bad this has been for so long. So anyway, yeah, I mean the best a woman as a slave could hope for was maybe to be given as a wife or concubine to a high status male, you know, who yeah. maybe was not you know was not was not brutal. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, she's a chapter on, on wives as essentially concubines and, um, and she, she talks about the, you know, the legal codes in Mesopotamian law, the code of Hammurabi and uh, the middle Assyrian law and the Hittite laws. Um, and then ultimately biblical laws, um, which really all institutionalized the patriarchal family, um, which included any women who were taken as slaves. Um, this is, a um, portrait uh, this is a um uh a portrait of a, a woman in sumer a carefully sculpted head from uruk um which name of which you may recognize from the epic of gilgamesh about 3500 bc i think um or maybe a little a little after that portraying a woman of great dignity and beauty who might have been a priestess a queen or a goddess this unique sculpture um and you can see the dates there personifies the major roles played by aristocratic women who are active in temple, palace, and economic management. Um, and we, you know, we we may think that that's typical, but they're the only ones that there's really 
you know, historical evidence for. Next slide, please. Slavery seldom, if ever, occurs in hunting gathering societies, but appears in widely separated regions and periods with the advent of pastoralism and later agriculture, urbanization, and state formation. Most authorities have concluded that slavery derives from war and conquest. Conquest. The sources of slavery commonly cited are capture and warfare, punishment for a crime, sale by family members, which is unbelievably heartbreaking, self-sale for debt and debt bondage. Um, slavery is the first institutionalized form of hierarchical dominance in human history. It is connected to the establishment of a market economy, hi hierarchies in the state. However oppressive and brutal it undoubtedly was for those victimized by it, it represented an essential, an essential advance in the process of economic organization, an advance upon which the development of ancient civilization rested. Thus, we can justifiably speak of the invention of slavery as a crucial watershed for humanity. Um, and there, you know, historically, um, there are um, societies and, 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 you know, local civilizations that absolutely could not have um, arisen, um, been economically successful, fed their people, or done, done any of the things that that you know civilizations are expected to do without slavery as a as a standard ongoing institution. You take away the slaves, um, and and they would have collapsed. Um, take away the slaves in in things that we go to visit as tourists in monuments in certain places. If there had been no slaves, none of that would have been there. Um, next slide, please. You have to remember that in agricultural societies, usually about 90% of the population was either out and out enslaved or in some form of serfdom. Yep. 90%. That's that's the average. And then the other 10% who get to have some kind of a good life, some kind of leisure, it all depends on that that 90%. So it's grim. I mean, life before fossil fuel, that's if you were in an agricultural society, that's what it involved. We've kind of forgotten this because we've been using machines now to do that work. But that's what's involved in this. And so that's why people like Jared Diamond and um, Lewis Mumford, you know, are, are heavily criticized this. It's like it just wrecked our capacity to be human to each other um, because we had to treat each other as, you know, be subverted, essentially. So that's where we are. Anyway, next slide. Biological and cultural factors predisposed men to enslave women before they had learned how to enslave men, um, you know. This, this started, um, patriarchy started even before slavery and made slavery possible. Men knew how to enslave um, because um, they had already been enslaving women um, in, in, you know, even in um, small little villages. Physical terror and coercion, which were an essential ingredient in the process of turning free persons into slaves, took for women the form of rape. Women were subdued physically by rape once impregnated, they might become psychologically attached to their masters. From this derived the institutionalization of concubinage, which became the social instrument, instrument for integrating captive women into the households of their captors, thus assuring their captors not only their loyal services, but those of their offspring. If a woman could be, um, you know, your servant, bearing your children, um, and helping in a, you know, in a uh, hunting gathering society, um, even where she was not a slave, um, it's a uh, an eventual hop, skip, and a jump um, to realizing that women can be perhaps commodified. Um, next slide, please. This is uh, one of the um, uh, one of the uh, um, goddesses. Um, she also there's a chapter also um, really interesting called "Veiling the Women," and I'm not going to get into it because it is excruciatingly detailed. Um, on the ancient, you know, Babylonian and Mesopotamian practices um, of the regulations on slave girls and concubines wearing veils. There are instructions really detailed on when, why, how, um, accompanied or not, um, specific punishments for, for not following the regulations. It is, it is just, it's intense control of women. I mean, every single aspect um, of, of, you know, women in slavery and as concubinage um, with, with veils. You know, if she, if she's accompanied by this man, but not that man and her family, she should be whipped this many times if she has a veil in this circumstance or doesn't in that circumstance. Um, One of the things that was so interesting about that part too was, and I don't think I realized this until the second reading, that the women who were not slaves and were 
they were the ones who had to be veiled when they left the house. Yes. And the women who were slaves were not allowed to be veiled. They had to go bare, barefaced and bareheaded. And I'm trying to picture myself, you know, in one of these societies where this is, this is, these are the rules. And like Marion says, they really meant it. You would be whipped 50 times if you, um, you know, if you, if you didn't follow these, these laws, which is horrible. Um, yeah. But if you were a slave woman and you had to go out, you, you, we were not allowed to wear a veil. And that meant that every single man who saw you knew that you were a slave. So yeah, there was like, like one... you were just marked as public property. Like you couldn't, how could you safely negotiate public space with every single man knowing what you existed for as, you know, a, a thing to be sexually used? Like, and it's horrible. Like they've made, they made the veil be the protective thing, which I mean, no, no, no way on this world would I ever want to wear a veil. Like you couldn't make me do it, but they flipped it in that culture so that the, the either way you're constrained. So if you're a woman whose honor and dignity is allowed because you're a free woman, you know, owned by one man, then you get to wear this veil and everyone will leave you alone. But if, so that means you have to be veiled, which is horrible. But if you're a, a slave, you're an enslaved woman, you don't, you're not allowed that protection. And so you're just, you know, let loose with nothing into the male public sphere where men clearly are just going to do whatever they want to you because you're marked as a woman who's, you know, already been degraded and used and, you know, you have no value. And like, that was just mind blowing to me. And like, and then the level of detail that this law, the laws go into about, like Marion said, oh, if you're with this man, you can do this. And if you're with this man, you can't do that. And you have to be veiled if blah, blah. like they really thought this through. And it's all about access to women and women's, you know, virtue in the eyes of men. That's all it's about. The veil, even, even, you know, currently in some parts of the world, um, um, you can hear um, comments about the veiling of women that um, sound like they were almost, almost verbatim taken from this book. Um, These goddesses, meanwhile, I mean, in Mesopotamian societies, the institutionalization of patriarchy created really sharply defined boundaries between women of different classes you know you have these upper class women getting at least some property rights um but these supreme goddesses um who had been so much a part of um you know of of women's culture as it were um had been were eventually dethroned um some goddesses still had spiritual power for women but the supreme goddesses were dethroned um there is a recurring mythology of what was called the sacred marriage. And this was a, um, something that, you know, if you read myths, um, eventually they all start to sound alike, or there are pieces of them that sound familiar, myth after myth after myth. And the sacred marriage was where a goddess mated with a young god who then died and is reborn, which allows the annual cycle of the seasons to begin. So the goddess confers the blessings of fertility um, to the earth. Um, next slide. Okay, let me go back to screen share. Hang on, we can do this. We have the technology. Here we go. There, there's um, there are a lot of details in multiple goddesses, and like I said, they'd previously been supreme. Now they are only or mostly meaningful in relation to the these new superior male gods. Um, Western civilization draws many of its leading metaphors and definitions of gender and morality from the Bible. Before we consider these leading symbols which have defined and shaped so much of our cultural heritage, we need to gain some understanding of the culture out of which the Bible came, and we need to survey, however briefly, the historic evidence within the Bible for the position of women in Hebrew society. The study of the Old Testament in its entirety would be far beyond the scope of this work. I have chosen to concentrate on the book of Genesis because it has provided the leading and most significant symbol concerning gender. Um, Keep in mind that the... um, that there is um um there is you know events and things that were talked about in the bible there are archaeological evidence for um the interpretation and the the religious aspect is something different but there are events that are talked about that actually did happen which there is evidence um and for which modern form criticism can kind of make some sense of um the bible was really the work of many hands um moses just didn't sit there you know, at brunch writing it one day. Um, and Genesis itself was really written over 400 years. Um, 
patriarchal tribes of the earliest period described in Genesis were, were nomads or semi-nomads in the in the desert. Um, first, there were families. Um, you know, they formed clans and then tribes. And and then she goes down the uh, you know the patriarchs, starting with uh, Abraham, who made a covenant with God. You know, Moses, and um, and by that time they were settling. Said Hebrews were settling in villages and small towns. Um, the social, you know, um, uh, Saul um, united the tribes, succeeded by David, then Solomon, um, and it went from matrilineal, um, patrilineal, matrilineal, and matrilocal and matrilineal to patrilocal and patrilineal. And all women um, were expected to marry. Um, they went from controlled by their father and brothers to controlled by the husband. Legal and social positions of women in Mesopotamian and Hebrew societies were similar in the strict regulation of women's sexuality and the institutionalization of a sexual double standard um, in the laws. The covenant, um, you know, one of the last chapters is the covenant. And um, what is different about this new at the time Hebrew religion? What's different? There are no mother goddesses mating with a male god. That's gone. The male God alone now creates the universe and gives life. Woman was created out of man's body, which is a very powerful metaphor of, of you know, of gender and the, and the conception of gender. Um, a very patriarchal symbolic meaning. The covenant between God and man, um, you know, for the was for the people to be God's chosen and God to bless them. Women were marginalized. Um, they weren't really even part of the covenant. Um barely mentioned um except um in terms of the fall in the garden of eden and and here are the punishments for for the fall eve will be ruled by her husband so the punishment is that um is is uh um the oppression of women women will have pain in childbirth and one and one of the punishments one of the main punishments for eve is that she will desire her husband women will desire men so Heterosexual desire is how women are punished. One of the ways women are punished. And not just desire him, but desire to lie beneath him. So she desires her subordination, her sexual yep. subordination. Yep. Yeah. Um, God, did so, I hate that when I was a kid? <laughs> I know. Um, uh, so how was patriarchy created? I mean, and it's in some ways, not so much women them, themselves who are commodified. It's women's sexuality and reproductive capacity which is, I think, an important distinction. Um, and women always, and still today, live in a relatively greater state of what she calls unfreedom as men. Um, so the sexualization, or what we now would call the eroticization of domination of women as a class, began before Western civilization. Um, the class position of women became consolidated through sexual capacities and relationships. Class for men is something different and apart for women. For men, class is based on ownership or not of the means of production. But for women, um, class is in relation to men, the family. Um, and this was, you know, um, absolutely a part of uh, Hebrew patriarchal society. The family mirrors the order in the state and educates its children to follow. Um, it also creates and constantly reinforces that order. And so what she said, what do we do about this? Um, the sexuality of women um, consisting of their sexual and reproductive capacities and services was commodified even prior to the creation of Western civilization. Development of agriculture in the Neolithic period fostered the intertribal exchange of women, not only as a means of avoiding incessant warfare by the cementing of marriage, but also because societies with more women could produce more children. In contrast to the economic needs of hunting-gathering societies, agriculturalists could use the labor of children to increase production. Um, and going further down, women themselves became a resource acquired by men, um, much as the land was acquired by men. Women exchanged or bought in marriages for the benefit of their families, later conquered or bought in slavery. So this is a summation of what she's been talking about in these preceding chapters. Next slide, please. I'm having that technological difficulty where technological it will not. Come on, come on. Well. So That's sorry, okay. I'm hitting the button, but That's all right. Um I'll I'll go I'll stop screen share and then I'll go back in. Maybe that'll That's okay. It. I know what page it's on so I can I okay. can read. Um what to do about it. What does she what does she say to do about it? She says, Well, it should be noted that when we speak of relative improvements in the status of women in a given society, 
you don't have to do the slides, Leah. Um, when we speak of relative improvements in the status of women in a given society, this frequently means only that we are seeing improvements in the degree in which their situation affords them opportunities to exert some leverage within the system of patriarchy. Where women have relatively more economic power, they are able to have somewhat more control over their lives than in societies where they have no economic power. Similarly, the existence of women's groups, associations, or economic networks serves to increase the ability of women to counteract the dictates of their particular patriarchal system. Some anthropologists and historians have called this relative improvement women's freedom. Such a designation is illusory and unwarranted. Reforms and legal changes, while ameliorating the condition of women as an essential part of the process of emancipating them, will not basically change patriarchy. Such reforms need to be integrated within a vast cultural revolution in order to transform patriarchy and thus abolish it. The system of patriarchy can function only with the cooperation of women. So talking about a revolution, um, this is, you know, to, to recognize this, um, you know, she knew what had just happened. Remember this book was published in what, 1986. Um, and she knew what the, you know, second wave radical feminism had done for women. Um, rape crisis counseling, domestic violence refuges, um, opportunity to better jobs, equal pay, childcare, um, all those things allowing men to walk away from men, to abandon men if they wanted to. Um, and when she when she is talking about um, you know the vast cultural revolution, um, it it's not talking about changing patriarchy because that that can't change. That'll never change. Um, it's talking about what we knew um, you know back in the seventies. Is the only the only thing um, that uh, um, um, that will change women's condition is by abandoning patriarchy. Can't change it. Need to abandon it. Uh, and if we and if we stay within it, um, we're cooperating it. And um, the cooperation of you know of the uh, of the enslaved or the conquered um, is you know Jean Sharp um, you know talks about that. You can't. Yes. They only have power because we give it to them. Yeah, and they coerce that power. I mean, they they make us submit, but we can resist. There, it's we have the human capacity to resist. And I feel like the first wave, and then into the second wave, the women who came before us gave us so much that we needed to finish this job, because we have the right to vote, and we can run for office, and we have you know e all kinds of economic um, you know capacities now that we didn't have before. You know, we can go to school, and we can you know, accumulate our own money and we can own property, like all these things women couldn't do 150 years ago. We can do those things now. And we need to be pushing this forward. Like it's not enough that we won those things. We now have to actually liberate women. We have enough tools now. We've knocked out enough bricks in that wall. It really is time to just finish this, right? We, we can do this as women now. We're not where we were 150 years ago. We really aren't. We have some very, very good tools now. We have some power, we have some levers, and it's time to use them. Yeah, she started with, um, you know, with patriarchy in every sphere of a woman's life um, before anything else, um, you know, linked to, um, and it was linked then to, you know, to the development of agriculture, to reproductive capacity, to, to, to everything. Um, and the conclusion, um, really, that, uh, uh, that, you can't change it. You're not going to educate men out of patriarchy or into giving up patriarchy. Um, it needs to be abandoned. Um, yeah, we need to do what the bonobos do, you know, just have <laughs> female solidarity. No, seriously, female solidarity, yeah. female bonding, and just make it impossible for them to hurt us. You hurt a woman, you are now thrown from the community. If that's it, you raise a hand to a woman, it's over. We need to have that kind of solidarity with each other. We have the economic capacity to do this now in a lot of countries. Women have enough money. We could make this happen. So we need to build that kind of solidarity with other women. We need to build that that woman, the, that woman identified woman, put woman at the center. That, yeah. That's when we have to do it. <laughs> she does talk about, um, you know, uh, you know, if you want to evaluate anything, look at it as does this center women or not? Yes. You know, she's so. right. Yeah. So there we are. It's three o'clock in the morning. We did our hour. We've yeah. got all the answers, people. We've got the analysis and we know what to do. So 
you can listen to Marion. She she knows what she's talking about. I um recommend reading the book. There is so much book. that I mean it's so dense. It's very, very dense. I mean it's dense. You know, very detailed. Like, yeah, detailed. like you know, this is the uh, the references. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's All pretty right. much right about everything. So yeah. Well, that Thanks. was great, Mary. Thanks for doing that one with me. Thank you, everybody.